You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. This is a non-com pod, uh, but it is nonetheless a conversation with a comedian, albeit a newer one. Pope Lonigan is my interviewee for today. He's a fascinating character. Um, I don't want to tell you too much about him because I sort of discovered him throughout the course of this interview. He came to my attention a little while ago. He's certainly been putting himself about on social media and offering interesting things. He runs uh, a show called The Addiction Clinic. Um, he is an addict, uh, a former addict. There is going to be some pretty upfront chat. This is I'm going to disclaim this with a general content warning uh, for talk about addiction. We will cover some thoughts on suicidal ideation. Um, but I also want to stress that unless those things are genuinely triggering for you, you should uh, listen to it anyway, because it isn't a dark, bleak, awful kind of a chat, nor is it a, a light, breezy look at the funny side of addiction. But Pope is much more than that. He is um, a really erudite character and there are some uh, there are some couple of shout outs couple of references to some astonishingly highbrow authors that at the time you'll probably hear me go uh-huh uh-huh as if i know what the fuck uh, he's talking about but he's very very literate uh, very well read it contrasts nicely with his voice which does not necessarily sound very literate depending on your own privilege and your uh, perception uh, your expectations of other people's accents um, but he is very honest and he's very funny, and I think that you are going to enjoy this. A very quick thanks to Tom Dewar, who uh, upped his subscription very kindly. Um, if you're a member of the Insiders Club, there's actually no extra content with this episode. It was just a quickie. Um, but all of the episodes of recent times which have extra content, you can get hold of all of that by joining the Insiders Club at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. And Tom Dewar is the latest in a short but... Um, what's the word for when you love some cherish uh, a short but cherished line of insiders who have been upping their subscriptions during the pandemic to support a thing they love thank you very much to tom new insiders freshly joined richard lucas simon harding ian pringle and debbie pirry thank you very much to uh, to all of you and caroline glover and ellie lynch have also made donations to the show as well um if you want to do any of that you can do it at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders and uh, find out all about the extra content there 
The Infinite Sofa is going phenomenally well. We had Dara O'Brien last night and it was everything I dreamt it would be. If you'd like to see the bit where I say, you shut your whole mouth, O'Brien, um, then we can. Uh, you can find that at infinitesofa.com. There's a link at the bottom of that page to all of the previous episodes of my brand new... Well, it's episode 14, but we've done it in seven weeks, so I'm still calling it brand new. My massively interactive chat show. It's like a massively multiplayer cross between... Gogglebox and Graham Norton, and it's going great guns. So I hope you'll check into infinitesofa.com and find out all about it. And of course, while we're in a plugging mood, Chops Comedy is a new material comedy at 8pm. All of these things are found at twitch.tv slash Goldsmith if you're on Twitch. And if you are on Twitch and you're an Amazon Prime person, you can link those two things together and give me a supportive little, I think I end up with £2.49 at no cost to you, other than the cost of your normal Amazon Prime subscription. So that is technically a cost. I'm unable to ever mention that without caveating it somehow in a way that is uh, entirely unnecessary. Now, let's get back to this episode. I think you're going to love it. This is Pope Lonigan. My guest today and his face you can see next to me is... Uh, you're Pope Lonigan, but your Zoom uh, info betrays you. Your real name is clearly Liam. Yeah, because that's what yeah, it says. Of course, yeah. <laughs> uh, I forgot to change it. I uh, know behind the veil. Yes, uh, my <laughs> stage name is Pope Lonigan. My real name is Liam Lonigan. So uh, why why Pope? Where did Pope come from? It, do you know what? It was just a plate like you know, like Beck when he wrote the song Loser. They said when he was doing uh, uh, in the studio, he just kind of came up with um, uh, like stream of consciousness lyrics and then they became the lyrics it's like okay. I, I use Pope Lonigan as a placeholder on Facebook I didn't want anyone to sort of find me who I worked with okay. and then I think it was Richard Gadd where I started getting booked as Pope Lonigan if I was getting booked through Facebook and Richard Gadd said oh is that your actual sort of stage name you use I said like on and off and that and he said oh no keep it it's a it's a very kind of interesting name especially if people think uh, it's your actual name but now I've fucked it up because I've, I've <laughs> now we know your real name yeah. we can bleep it we'll bleep it on the podcast yeah, yeah. 10 people on Twitch will know but no one else yeah. um, I, I see now you have while speaking to me uh, changed it up that's very uh, impressive yeah, yeah. that's very good uh, mastery of uh, multitasking yeah. so well I do I agree with Mr Gad on that because Pope I think it's very eye catching you yeah. first came to my attention I think a few years ago um you'd been mentioning stuff or kind of um uh, stuff on the on the comedians comedian facebook group and i remember it was pope does certainly jump out in a way that liam perhaps doesn't because yeah. it, it kind of connotes where are you from uh essex so yeah ah, south end okay. on sea yeah okay yeah. okay interesting um, because to me pope and particularly with lonigan it sounds obviously lonigan's an irish name yes right, that's right yeah yeah so pope works particularly with that because you think who is this guy it's almost like don rodolfo yeah, uh, yeah. The, uh, kieran's character <laughs> from the last couple of festivals so um you, you what we're going to talk about today is a, a couple of things we'll talk a little bit about your comedy you're four or five years in did you say yeah yeah so i did my first ever gig five years ago took a hiatus for about nine months uh so i always say sort of coming up to october it'll be about four years of actually performing okay um, and and who were you before comedy 
I was I, I was sort of someone... I mean to be fair it's, it's only four or five years you may still be that person but who have you been for most of your life before? yeah I'm very much probably still that person I was uh, so I, I, I was a, a drug addict number one uh, thank god that isn't something that is uh, is is present uh, in my in my life now but um, I worked in elderly care I have done that for eight and a half years and uh, I I, stu- I studied I'm sort of one of these people I studied English literature and creative writing in uni got a first as well right. uh, but I, I like when I was talking to Alfie Brown about it, it said I'm one of these people who studied that but I still say things like I've done a degree in English literature yeah. and creative <laughs> yeah, writing so yeah <laughs> I'm someone another comedian said I'm someone who's intelligent but sounds thick uh, and I think, yeah, I think that's just about right. Is the yeah, that well, that's quite a fun dynamic, isn't it? To be able to, you can play to uh, lots of different types of person, I guess. If yeah. you you can make a you can make a palatable message. I remember from your set at Chops, you were doing who was the who was the person? It was an author, was it Hemingway or someone? No, you were James, Joyce. Oh, James Joyce. Joyce, yeah, yeah. Joyce. Yeah, I like, I'm obsessed with Joyce. I do a Bloomsday event, like a comedy event, uh, to to celebrate James Joyce every year. And I'm mean, mainly the, the the thing I really intrigues me about him is this idea of ennobling the body's lower stratum of turning our base functions like shit and piss and vomit and any kind of effluent turning that into something tinged with poesy and I'm someone who's had bowel problems I've got Crohn's disease as well obviously Working in elderly care, you know, you're cleaning these people and a lot of the time you're wearing their hemorrhoid as like a cufflink. Uh, that's a big part of elderly care is cleaning up feces. And that idea of like the grotesqueries of our uh, our biology really intrigues me. I, I find that fascinating and Joyce is really big on that. Let's let's talk about being a drug addict because I know you do Pope Lonergan's Addiction Clinic, which yeah. is a, a live show, then a podcast, and now a Twitch show. Is that uh, right? It's yeah, it's a live show. It hasn't actually. I haven't turned it into a podcast. I, I tried to get okay. a podcast podcast off the ground talking about addiction. We've done a few episodes. We've got a really mm-hmm. good response, but they didn't carry on with it. Like, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a live show. And now I've I've migrated it to online and i've been doing it with uh with next up as well it's a slightly changed um doing it online but uh yeah i've been doing that show for about two and a half years now and and to what extent do you i i feel like and forgive the term i feel like the addiction thing is kind of inescapably part of your brand if you like because you're sort of someone who in the same way that russell brand did um you kind of weaponizing your former life a life that i don't know what what are your feelings about your former life let's let's just spend a minute kind of setting you up given that it is part of what you do how did you fall into drug addiction? What kind of addiction are we talking and how did you get out of it? Okay, so from the age of 13 was the first time I, I drank alcohol, uh, for mm-hmm. instance. Straight off the bat, I knew it was going to be a problem because I liked it too much, uh, that, that that feeling of just kind of uh, flying above yourself, flying above the uh, the, the parapet of, of this actual material existence i always wanted fucking transcendence and any way i could attain that i i I would leap at the chance to do so then so drink played a role from the age of 13 then i got on to uh sort of party drugs recreational drugs and stuff quite a bit later on to be honest probably about uh, 19 when i went when i went to university i actually remember so i was in uh, went down to university with my uh, with my mum and dad 
And my housemate went down with his mum and dad as well to help move our stuff in. And the, the minute our parents left, he went to me, have you ever done pills before? And I went, no. And he went, do you want to do some now? I went, let's go for it, man. <laughs> like, <Okay. laughs> and uh, so, yeah, straight from that, it was like uh, drugs were all consuming, like all through the day and night. I'd have a routine of like waking up and getting Frosty Jacks, which if people don't know, they're these 50p cans that are like 12%. They're like they're pure chemicals, disgusting. Yeah. I used to get like a massive six-pack of them and hold my nose and down all of them just to start the day, like just Jesus to get up in the morning. Christ. And then like my housemate would show me like a, a video montage of like beheading videos or something. It's a horrendous lifestyle I led. And then uh, I'd get like six grams of it. it was methadrone for a long time so that was when it was still a ten or a gram then it became uh illegal so it's no longer um uh, that that cheap and then yeah just all just the whole day would be spent kind of navigating myself through the world on any substances i could get hold of and uh would, would there be would there be any moments of clarity if you're getting blasted on cider first thing in the morning would there yeah. be moments would there ever be a come down where you would feel like your actual unmedicated self yeah there, there would there'd be like pockets of lucidity throughout the day and 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 them them moments were uh agonizing because you had to confront it's also knowing that the come down is just around the corner. And so like their moments of, of, of clarity when you realise that that is, is potentially imminent if you don't keep going and keep taking drugs uh, or just oh, horrendous. Um, but yeah, fun as well. I mean, there was plenty of fun times in it. Uh, we, I, the boy I stayed was like an 18 day bender, nonstop uh, drink and drug use. And uh, it would, yeah, we, 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 we'd just be playing cricket in our garden on this like little broken slab of concrete in the garden, just playing cricket throughout the day or, or just sitting. Yeah, it was horrible, horrible existence for a long time. But, um, and, yeah. and how much, how much transcendence did you actually achieve? Uh, quite, probably quite a lot at the beginning, but as, as time went on, as the years went on, not, not very much at all. And I was always one of these people who was a very solitary drug user. So I wasn't even doing it for, for social reasons. And like, if I did end up going to a, a party or whatever, I'd have like a party boy gram that I share amongst people. So they think I'm sociable, but then I'd have four grams tucked in my back pocket for myself and in the end I'd, I'd, I'd spend the whole party going into the bathroom putting like a black bag over myself to to muffle the sound of me snorting drugs because I didn't want anyone to know I had more drugs on me yeah. and I'd sit there in that bathroom muffling the sound covered in a black plastic bag thinking I, uh, this is hell, but I do not want it to change anytime soon. It's uh, it's uh, really the... even in that kind of a moment, you were like, "This is, <laughs> looks to camera. This is brilliant." Yeah. Really <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's uh, it 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 was yeah, it was always when the I mean the, the come down would come eventually, and they were the moments when uh, you 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 know it'd be awful. But but then yeah, weirdly enough, I came out of that had two years of. Um, uh, like sobriety of clean time and got into a relationship with someone who had borderline personality disorder so like an addict someone with BPD very tempestuous dynamic 
and uh, and it was sort of yeah, it was going well initially, but then the fault lines started to show in that relationship. I had Crohn's disease. My face looked like a fucking sinkhole. I was lagoon green and a plat. This is when you know I had a plat that went down to my back like that. Mm. So I was always walking around in a dressing gown and a vest with bolognese stains down it and uh, and these weird uh, kind of what they I can't remember like these patterned leggings and uh, and I was I was prescribed opiates uh, to manage the the pain from Crohn's disease which actually every gastroenterologist would tell you is madness it's madness that I would would have been prescribed that but then in the end they were just chucking different opiate medication at me because it is completely mismanaged so I had like you know bottles of morphine I had uh, dehydrocodone I had MST and with MST you could you know, smash them and snort them to release the, the, the to get around the slow release mechanism and all this kind of, you know, opiate drugs were chucked uh, uh, were chucked over uh, to me by by doctors by by medical professionals and then life just yeah got got really really uh, sort of pure stasis just life paused for about five years um, yeah. So that was that was another period. So you got clean. How had you got clean the first time? I don't after? know. I think I, mo- I so I moved back home. I think it was the year because I'd had a very staggered education. With uh, with sorry sorry viewers, this feels like it's getting a bit dark and bleak. I'll uh, I'll, I'll try and uh, I'll try and inject a bit of humour into it. You ne- you needn't. That's the other thing yeah. I should have said at the beginning. Don't feel there's any pressure to be funny. Uh, okay. And I should also point out as well, just while just while we've kind of uh, almost paused, how old are you, Pope? Uh, Thirty. Thirty. Okay. Because yeah. I'm trying. Because people listening to this who haven't seen you, because of the timbre of your voice, they might assume that you are considerably older and yeah. considerably less baby-faced than you actually are. Yeah, yeah. Because the stories you're telling about the abuse you've inflicted on yourself, I I know guys who've been through things like this. You know, former you know street performers or associates thereof who would tell me stories like this but even if they're 40 they look 60 whereas you are a very fresh-faced 30 year old so yeah, yeah. you know what i mean you you really have come out of this in a surprisingly cherubic bearded yeah. but cherubic kind of a way so um let's let's get back into it and don't don't worry if it gets dark just to speak as, as you're as you're comfortable speaking don't try and be entertaining certainly. okay great um but uh, we're talking about the period through which you pulled yourself up from six cans of Frosty Jacks in the morning and methadrone and all the rest yeah. of it to, to... I mean, that's clearly... You were addiction. You were an alcoholic? Yeah, time, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah, from, like, the ages of 13 and, like, I'd had problems with alcohol. And, and okay. that, yeah, alcohol dominated. There would be different moments. Like alcohol dominated at one stage in my life and then moved on to drugs and then it moved okay. on to prescription opioids and okay okay but in that but in that gap i was really fascinated by that relationship gap whereby you were in the grip of addictions and then you went completely clean for two years yeah. before it started again i think yeah it was I, I i it wasn't even a conscious decision it was the first time i'd i'd i'd, I'd been in a relationship uh for, for starters and even with that, it was like an unusual. I, I, can't, I, I kind of can't talk about it too much. So I, I wouldn't want to disrespect my ex because there's no like hostility there or bad sure, feeling. Yeah. Okay. And I've come, sometimes been a bit candid about stuff on these, and it, she's got to be upset. But it, it was a it was a strange, um, 
uh, courtship in that right right at the beginning of, of us getting together she had to move in with my mum and dad so we all had to start living together okay and my mum's like quite an unapologetically bolshy like five foot two Essex mum uh my girlfriend at the time was also quite a quite a boisterous uh, uh um uh exuberant personality i'm loving seeing you navigate this part <laughs> of the description yeah <laughs> Without because without without denigrating those two specific people and without saying something that just sounds overtly sexist, which I really don't want to do, obviously. Um, and uh, and yeah, they, they they would both they would both like fight. I remember I once had to throw a wardrobe down the stairs to stop them <laughs> to stop them hitting each other. And uh, yeah, it was it was kind of um, I, I I I felt like if I put drugs. On top of that circumstance, even though later down the line I would I would use drugs to 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 numb myself to those kind of situations, but at that time I thought if I'm if I'm having to you know use and then go through withdrawal and use and go through withdrawal, uh, the moments of, of of lucid lucidity of clarity to then be confronted with this like domestic turmoil, it just mm-hmm. felt like. I can't. It's too much all in one go. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. That's. I, I feel like that's an instinct for self-preservation that maybe is uh, missing with other addicts. Yeah. To think to myself, oh, I, I better knock this on the head now. Is I feel yeah. like. A, <laughs> do you know what I mean? I feel like presumably lots of addicts want to improve their domestic situation, but you were able to. Do you feel you, like the the grip of your addiction was maybe less? Uh, uh, vice-like than uh, than in, in the case of other addicts, or do you think you it was self-control or an instinct for self-preservation that was different? Uh, no, it's definitely it, it, it permeates every part of my being. That like addictive tendency. Um, it was. I, I definitely haven't got a handle on, on it. I don't believe in what what's, what some people believe that it's a matter of willpower. Sure. I believe in the idea of self-binding. So, like, if drugs are there in front of me, I couldn't stop myself. I just wouldn't have mm-hmm. the, the capacity to do so. Mm-hmm. But what I can do, which does require a bit of willpower, is not allow myself to be in situations or put myself in front of uh, uh, visual visual cues that will bring back like euphoric recall. And there's certain ways of uh, engineering your life. Hmm. To, to to prevent you from using drugs and that's called self-binding in sort of recovery okay. terms okay i've the only real addiction i think i've had uh besides i was going to make some glib joke about uh not exactly performance but maybe glibness i think yeah, glibness yeah. is the sort of main addiction um, but the only kind of chemical addiction i've had is nicotine yeah and i was able i was very lucky to to read the alan carr easy way to stop smoking book about which i'm evangelical read that about 20 years ago and gave up overnight whilst reading it and never looked back and i do remember the central principle of that is that i have to regard myself as a recovering nicotine addict for the rest of my life because if I have a single cigarette, I'll be right back there on day one. Mm-hmm. And actually having that very... Um, Pete Dobbing described it to me as the way the book... He, he gave me the book and he said, um, uh, the way this book works is it's kind of like, it's not hypnosis, it's not hypnosis. You know, and yeah. it kind of, it sort of it is... It, I, I don't know whether it is technically an LP, but um, it, uh, it really made a lot of things kind of very clear for me 
in recognising the addictive personality within myself, or not even the addictive personality, but the simple fact of the chemical addiction to nicotine, it's incredibly good at... um, It made me challenge and logically bust all of the excuses that I would give myself as to why I was allowed to have... Oh, I've just broken up with someone. I'm allowed a cigarette. And it made me really realise in a very stark, very vivid way, oh, those things are simply the addiction talking. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I I, I don't know because it's... Like, when I went to... Actually, because I'll be getting a bit ahead of myself, but I've, I've always been... I, I've never believed in this idea of a, a stigma being ta- attached to addiction. I come from like where I was talking about my mum before. She's always uh, cultivated this environment full of like full disclosure and like complete transparency. Just get it all out there. Tell your mummy. Tell your mummy. <laughs> but, yeah. my, but my dad, and this is where it's going to come as a show. My dad is actually a uh, detective sergeant. So uh, my dad okay. is 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 a bit more. Uh, he's a bit. He's a bit more prudish in a weird kind of way, and a bit more reticent okay. about me revealing so much of myself. Um, sure, but yeah. I, I, but I think I've always been quite aware or quite attuned to my triggers and to the parts of my personality that uh, that that are, uh, that are problematic and what I need to do to stop myself from uh, uh, you know dropping in a catalyst for that addictive yes, manic behaviour. So, yeah, I mean, I, it manifests itself in weird ways. Like they said that yeah, Leonardo da Vinci, he was he, believed to be uh, a gay man and that because he could never express that that, that desire uh, through sex, that he, he had what they call sublimated addiction and that's why he became very prolific in his work and then, you know, doing loads of different things. And, like, yeah, my sublimated addiction, like, manifests itself. Like, I do a bit on stage where I talk about getting addicted to books about the Hawaiian judicial system and that's not far off. I, get, okay. I, I, I start reading about the Hawaiian judicial system, for instance, and then I buy, like, seven books on the Hawaiian judicial system. I mean, okay. I'll, I'll only, like, read... I might I might dip in and out of one, but I'll mainly read the blurbs, and then I move on to the next thing to get interested okay. in. Okay. Um, yeah. So, okay, and at what point did... I mean, we casually often refer to stand-up comedy as an addiction. Um, at what point did you... Is Do you think that's something that you've sublimated yeah. your addictive personality into comedy? Oh, 100%, yeah. And I know the exact moment. The, I can pinpoint the exact uh, day that, it, that that occurred. And it was during the Camden Fringe in 2017. So I think it's the... Uh, the I think it was the 29th of August, right at the end. And it was my return to stand-up comedy after like a nine-month hiatus. And I had this booked in. It was just like a like a double header with my uh with my my friend, uh, my close close friend Michael, who is now a comedy writer, doesn't actually do stand-up anymore. But um okay, it, it, I, I, something just opened up and and there was like a real transformation in my on-stage demeanour because before I was always like really sweaty and manic and going all over the place, mainly because I was on I was on drugs or coming down from drugs or, or something mm-hmm. like that, whereas this was... Uh, I was completely clean. I was completely clean. I'd had nine months post-rehab of coming back mm-hmm. to comedy 
and I just I just sat the fuck down. It seems like a really simple but very effect for me, very effective device of I just got on stage and sat the fuck down. Just sat down. That helped to anchor me. That ha- that helped to uh, 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 sort of uh, ground me and allowed me to be in control while in that space. And that was the first time I'd ever enjoyed doing comedy. Even though by that point, I you know I'd I'd had done it quite a while. I'd done quite a few, not in comedy terms, like I'd hardly done it at all, but. But um, I'd you know I'd had I'd had quite a few sort of bit bigger gigs there, and uh, and it before that it always felt like a a punitive thing. It never felt like a fun, leisurely, enjoyable thing. Which is you know it, it didn't seem fun to me. But that was the first moment it it seemed fun. And the audience was about three people, but uh, it was the most fun I'd had doing comedy up to that let's, point. Let's stay with the word punitive for a minute. So let's talk about, let's just go back in the timeline. You were clean, you were in a relationship, you got into opiates. And did you say for about five years you were sort of lost in a, in a, in a stasis? You yeah, said? like a liminal state of just, I had this kind of like, there's a book called Oblomov, which I really like. And it's, I always said like an Oblomovian existence. It's this man who kind of just drifts around doesn't achieve anything. It's kind of bathroom hopping all the time. And there's another book called The Bathroom by Jean-Philippe Toussaint. That's the same, similar sort of thing. I love that. I love that. And these, these are books that you've read beyond the blurb on the back. Yeah, these are ones I've actually read. These are, I, read I, 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 I read, I read, boy. I read. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, these are ones I actually read and, and enjoyed. And that idea... Of, uh, of a sort of sedentary lifestyle and, and inertia and boredom and all that kind of stuff, I find deeply, deeply fascinating, mainly because that was my life for for five years. I was just stuck in this this uh, tiny, tiny flat and with a girlfriend where both of us were just waiting for the other one to die. So we had an exit route from that relationship. Like we were both, <sighs> we were both, we were both just ho- like we were both hoping to get that phone call. Where we're like, oh my god, she's dead, and then be like, cheers, mate. Yeah, you've really sorted me out there, boy. Thank you for that. <laughs> well, I am glad to hear that that was reciprocated. Yeah, we, as it was an attitude. It was, yeah, it was. She, she, we, 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 even in the relationship, we would both joke about how, like, it was. It, we were, we were. It was. We were being very honest and candid with each other about how we, we, we really despise each other, but we're inextricably bound together. And we could actually laugh about that even while in it. It wasn't even like a retrospective thing of like, oh god, what hell? Even even in a moment, we were like, this is this is fucking hell. Isn't and, it, it? And, it, that, and that was a codependency, was it? Yeah, it was, yeah. It was based on your mutual needs as uh, people who were, well, in your case, addicted, and in her case, a BPD experiencer. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely, a hundred percent pure codependence and it's it's um yeah it's 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 a shame that my my first ever uh, relationship was 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 built on those those kinds of foundations because as we know it's extremely unhealthy to to have that mutual need because um yeah you you're you're both gonna fall short on what you require from each other because you're both very damaged people and uh, they, they, you know, we would we would swap between the caregiver and the, you know, the, the the person who needs care, the you know, the caregiver and the afflicted, and we're both 
uh, interchange those different roles all the time and uh, we'd both be frustrated that we were designating that role to the other person. So, yeah, terrible sort of relationship to, to, to be in a codependent relationship. Mm. And where did you so in in that so that, that carried on during the five years of the of your opiate addiction? Yeah, we were yeah we were together for yeah for about four four or four and a half years I think so yeah we were together okay. for four and a half years. And then what got you? Is that was that your most recent addiction that you then you got clean of opiates? What was the turning point for that? Yeah, it was. I'd like to say it was this um, like road to Damascus moment this like epiphanic moment of like 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 this yeah, i mean it kind of, it was in a way because i did like leading up to that i'd had four months of thinking the the bottom has got to fall out like this 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 is not sustainable in any way like the bottom has got to fall out eventually because this is no life i wasn't seeing anyone i wasn't doing anything uh, it's I haven't even got the kind of reckless like hedonistic druggy stories to um to you know, to to feel like it was all worthwhile. Mm. Um, it was just so that was, so. That was a different. That that addiction was different in that it, it didn't offer transcendence so much yeah. as what. Yeah, it, yeah. It just offered. It, I, I think you're always so you're always chasing that. So the initial feeling of taking opiates in the early stages, I always say it's like fresh air faults and a stomach full of moon glow. That's just a, a thing I, I've written before. And that is the, the, the feeling you get of, like, like, ev- like all the cobwebs in your brain have been lifted. Everything has resonance. Everything seems really uh, profound and engaging. And you want to have conversations with people. And, um, and you can have that for quite a long time because people aren't necessarily aware you're on it. It's not like MDMA where, you know, your, your, your eyes are like saucers, you've got a swinging jaw. It's not clear in those early stages of opiate abuse that, that you're even on anything apart from you might seem a little bit more excitable for an hour a day. Mm. Um, but yeah, then it, then it got to a point where I was like necking back 60 to hydrocodone tablets, like in one go, I was drinking bottles of like oxycodone or oromorph. Um, and this is stuff they give to t- terminal patients. This is stuff that they, they, they give um, to, to people who are dying. And I was down in pints of this stuff. So your, your stamina is presumably extraordinary, which is probably something of a blessing and a curse for the addict because you're able to go harder than anyone. I mean, you lived through this. Yeah. What you're describing sounds like it would have killed me, for example. It's, it would kill me now, like because you build up a tolerance. That's the I thing. See, it, yeah, it, 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 you, adapt, you adapt to the levels. So it, it's incremental. It takes a while to, to get up to that um, get to get up to that point. And, and, and do, you, do you look back at that? You were talking, sorry to interrupt, but you were That's talking right. about the, the experience of opiates and in the, in the early days you feel more engaged and like fresh air thoughts. Now looking back at that time, do you feel that that perception was real or do you feel that that perception was flawed based on the opiates changing your ability to perceive what was actually meaningful or not? Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was the, the, the second one. It was, um, it was all uh, uh, illusory. Like it, was, it, 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 it didn't exist. That, 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 um, 
you feel like you have like a heightened sense of connection with people and stuff like that. None of that existed. It was it was all false. And I really understood that when I went to rehab and in rehab we had to write a every day we had to do a diary at the end of the day. It's a long day rehab. You have like a lot of different things you're doing. It's actually very busy. And then at the end of the day, we had a diary. And my therapist would always say, oh, we love reading your diaries. It's like a, it's, it's like a short story. It's like a, like a vignette or something. It's really uh, uh, like really well written and enjoyable to read and stuff. And they said, obviously, you've been doing a lot of writing since you've been in here. And they said, I bet that's the most amount of writing you've done in like five years. And because initially I'd always kid myself into thinking that opiates were like sparking up the brain and they were stimulating me and Mm. they were giving me access to sort of, you know, different perceptions, not like hallucinogenic, like doors, you know, opening the doors of perception or anything like that, just allowing me to feel more in or more in step with the world because i suppose every addict feels like they've had a severance from from everyone else from people um and they're always trying to re-establish that connection with other human beings and uh yeah, that, that, that's what that's what I feel like all the time. Like I can be a gregarious, like socialiser in short bursts and stuff, but uh, most of the time I'm I'm a very um, hermetic, like at home, just reading or writing or knocking about with a load of people with dementia, which I love. <laughs> I enjoy that. I love. I, I was saying on a podcast the other day. I said the uh, the the hour in within the care home, the final hour where. Uh, all the sort of hectic, frantic daily stuff that you have to do within the care home, where I'd just be sitting with four other people with dementia, making them a cup of tea each, and we're all just kind of chit-chatting. But, like, we're all chit-chatting as if we're talking together, but all the conversations are occurring, like, independent yes. of each other and stuff. And so, but those those final uh, those final moments I, 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 lived, I lived for. They were something very meditative and uh, uh, beautiful about those moments that I really Be- enjoyed. Before we get on to that work, and I, I, that really resonates with me, I, I think before my granny passed away, she had dementia for several years, and... Um, I think of my family, I probably was most okay with it mm-hmm. in terms of being with it, certainly to begin with until everyone else got used to it, purely because I've been to parties where people have been having hallucinogenic experiences and I've yeah. had a few myself and I was like, oh, I understand when she's sort of, you know, my mum would refer to it as, oh, you know, granny's rambling. Uh, but really what was going on was she was hallucinating a sort of mesh and she was going, what is that? What is that mesh that's everywhere? Yeah. Uh, you know, there was, uh, and, and I was, I think I was a bit less freaked out yeah. due to my own sort of very minor psychonaut history. I was like, oh, go on, I can engage with this and sort of talk her through it. And I feel I've, I've talked people down, if not from actual ledges, but from kind of hallucinogenic ledges before. So I, yeah. I felt I was a bit sort of forearmed. I, I've said that before. I've said the, the, the nearest, the, the, for me, the nearest uh, experience I've had that I, I assume is a sort of facsimile of that 
situation is when I would, yeah, same thing, when I'd go to house parties and I remember everyone would chuck their powder. I didn't know what everyone had. They'd chuck all their powders into a bowl and then we'd just snort indiscriminately Jesus from the bowl. Christ. So you don't know what you're getting. You're just, and you feel absolutely, uh, you you feel absolutely. I remember I gave myself, during one of those situations, I gave myself an epididymal cyst because I tried to drop my bollock through the letterbox to surprise the postman. <laughs> And the letterbox flap got caught on my bollocks and created this like thing in my epididymis. <laughs> oh God! Uh, so, yeah, don't don't do powder. I mean, I was uh, yeah, I was about just before the uh, the epididymal story. Yeah. Uh, I was just about to feel like I, I I felt like we should caveat this story by going in the name of God, don't mix a load of random yeah, powders please together don't. because you are lucky to have survived that. Absolutely. But I think possibly you've uh, the, the the warning at the end of that is its own caveat. So this is Pope. We uh, I didn't really talk about at the top of the show the sorts of things we were going to say other than that kind of content warning, but more to come, more on the search for transcendence, more on his work in care homes and a comedy tour of care homes um, and uh, more on two extended periods of alarming addiction coming up soon. Um, we'll get back to Pope in just a second. Just a reminder to go to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders if you would like to support the show and not just support the show, but actually become part of a community that is becoming more and more tight-knit with every passing day. And to go to the Infinite Sofa as well. The uh, That's infinitesofa.com. No V on that URL infinitesofa.com to find out all about that. And if you have any ideas, whether you're an insider and you want to mention these in the Slack app, or if you're just listening on a casual basis, <laughs> parry this. Um, if you want to email me, info at comedianscomedian.com, or even engage with me on social media, at comcompod, then I would love to know your ideas for massively marketing something that is brilliant. I think a lot of us, when ourselves, when oneself is the subject of your mark, of one's marketing, what a clumsy sentence that was, what I'm trying to say is it's always been easier for me to tell the world how great this podcast is than it is for me to tell the world how great I am as a stand-up. I could do with being a bit more American and a bit less uh, self-deprecating than I am. Certainly people have listened to this show for years and assumed that I'm average as a comic because I say disparaging things about my work. And of course, in my mind, what I'm doing is proving that I'm part of the club by being diffident and, hey, you know, same old shit, man, about something I value highly and I'm excellent at. But that's the point I'm making. In terms of the infinite sofa, it's just so good. And I want everyone to watch it, not out of a sort of shameless sense of 10xing the audience and making a ton of cash, although that too, but mainly because it's glorious. And I feel like it's like flypaper. Everyone that checks in on it and sees it is like, oh, this is good and stays. I just had a great interview this morning with Cy Hawkins for the British Comedy Guide. I, I was interviewed by Cy. Um, so that should be coming out soon. I'll link to it in the show notes if we get there in time. If not, I'll, I'll ref it in the uh, ComCom Facebook group. Um, but he's thrilled about it as well. And it gave me a real shot of adrenaline to go, yeah, right, this is working. So infinitesofa.com for all you need on that. And um, I think I'm going to pause the working lunches for the moment. I've had loads of requests and I've, and I've even taken on some uh, some repeat clients, if you will. So I've sort of uh, forged some ongoing relationships there. But uh, I am probably at capacity there with all the other things I need to do. So let's pause them for now. Um, and if you hear me talking about this and uh, it is any later than, say, June 2020, 
then you can uh, probably go to comedianscomedian.com slash lunch. And by then I will have gone, no, no, I need the money and I'm going to get back into doing it. Let's say freed up the time. I freed up the time. And I need the money and I'm going to get back into doing it. So, um, oh, very last thing. If you go to, you know, the British Comedy Guide, I mentioned it earlier. How sweet. Oh, God, that's the sort of thing I'd have set up to deliberately segue into if I was any kind of producer. Um, It's a website which has got all sorts of stuff there. For I mean, they've got enormous traffic. It's a brilliant, brilliant site for everything you want to know about comedy news, interviews with people, stuff like that. But there is a thing called comedy.co.uk slash pro for anyone who wants to start out in comedy or progress. There's exclusive articles i've put a few things on there uh, there's insights and advice from people there's a hub of opportunities there's a competition on at the moment where three writers have their script optioned and pitched to tv channels by former bbc and sky comedy boss lucy lumsden um and you can expand your profile on the guide they get over half a million visitors to the people directory every month i mean all of this sounds too good to be true but the best bit is if you enter the code comcom on the joining page you get five pounds off and you support the podcast, I get a couple of quid as well. Comedy.co.uk slash pro. Enter the code COMCOM on the joining page. You'll get a fiver off. All right, that's all the things. Let's get back to Pope. Before before we get on to the work with uh, with elderly care, um, I suppose we. I, I feel like you were halfway through a thought before about the. I'm very fascinated, given that you are so well read, and we know that some of the great literary figures have experienced and experimented with drugs. Um, whether did you did you feel at the time? I did, we do, just this quality of whether or not that sensation of uh, togetherness or a kind of uh, transcendent awareness. Looking back at it now, you can say it was illusory. At the same time, we do you. I don't, I'm not sure what the question is. You know the way people with comedians always go, oh, they're all secretly depressed, and yeah, that's not yeah. necessarily the case. Yeah. Do you think it's true that in literary circles it's easy for non-drug-taking critics to look at the works of whoever, Joyce Hemingway, whoever, and go, oh, well, of course, it all came. It was all stimulated by his incredible experiences in the, in the recesses, yeah. of his, you know, the doors of his perception, that actually you might look at that and go, no, he was probably an excellent writer. And yeah. would maybe have been better if it wasn't for all the tremendous amounts of drugs they were taking. But like, the where do you thi- stand on that? Yeah, there's the, yeah, there's the, there's the thing because I, I, I to be honest, yeah, that that's all the, the the revelations or the stuff I thought was really revelatory on drugs and on like hallucinogenics and stuff like that. I've never done anything with that. I've never I've never done anything with with those experiences. It's always been the the quite sort of quotidian stuff around that of like going into uh, uh, public toilets at, like, nine in the morning to escape my girlfriend and turning the toilet cubicle into my own little makeshift office while, like, neck 60 to hydrocodone tablets and eat a bag of Monster Munch. Or it's always the bits of, um, of life that occur around what what you deem to be um re, re, you know these the, the, in in your own head at the time these really profound experiences but i i i don't know whether i don't know whether anyone can really really capture those moments properly and, and turn it into a, a, anything you know interesting to read kind of in the same way that when people describe their dreams it's sure. obviously you because it's it's in that dream uh, scape it's an all-encompassing sort of sensory experience to you, so you're getting a sense of like the mood of the the, the situation. Whereas when you just give it you an itinerary of of what occurred within the dream, people aren't 
they're not they're not feeling the mood of it and and all that kind of stuff and i i i believe that when uh when you're sort of sending a transmission from you know a, a hallucinogenic realm people aren't really getting how it felt to you so it's sure. boring to read yeah yeah and did you and just coming back to the timeline you there was the time on opiates the end of opiates and then did comedy happen after that yeah. And, well, and so when when does comedy happen and when does working with the elderly? Okay. Yes. Yeah, so there, it's it sort of all overlaps a bit. So I did my first ever gig in October two thousand and fifteen, um, and then I was doing comedy for uh, for about a year. Well, can I just say in in two thousand fifteen? Why why did you start doing stand up? Oh my! So for a long time, I I I'd been comedy adjacent or kind of <laughs> skirting around the edges of comedy. I I, I did my dissertation uh, on it, and I I got to like hang out with people like you know Simon Munnery and Josie Long, and I've been a I've been a comedy nerd since I was tiny. Like I've been a comedy. Okay. My first I remember my first ever uh, essay I had to write in year three was about Rowan Atkinson and his his life and works and stuff like that. So I. I I've been obsessed with comedy ever since I was young. And um, I wanted to experience it vicariously through talking to people like Simon or Josie without actually committing to doing it. But then my mate Michael uh, signed us up at the the, the Cavendish Arms. For those who are thinking of going into comedy, that's a really lovely uh, place to start. It's a very warm, uh, receptive environment. And yeah, so I started doing that. But then I got, I, I remember I'd, I sort of about a year in, I got booked for one of Not Too Bags uh, gigs. Oh, yeah. And I was on the same bill as like uh, yeah, like Nick Helm, like Bridget Christie. Uh, I think Romesh, I think Romesh was supposed to be there, but he, he didn't end up coming in. Like Liam Williams and all these people. And I was like a nobody. So when I was... In the in the green room, like everyone's was like like has anyone has anyone lost a little wanker like, who's this, like who the fuck is this who's this little chancer? Um, but I was yeah I was actually I was actually on the bill and I uh, I remember I was just I'd had I had so many pills and and vodka in my system and like no one would know like you, you no one was was aware because by that point I um I I always took enough to make me feel nothing but not enough to 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 make a mischief and yeah i kind of went up and it was my first big gig you know it, was, it, it felt big to me it was at um rich mix and it was sold out because it was like the the venue's like 25th birthday or so and yeah and i got up on stage and probably like I, for that for that time you know really early in co-ate version of a comedian I I probably did okay, like did quite well, but I came off and, and just felt nothing. Like I felt nothing at all, um, and uh, and then how long it was? Probably about another four months after that. I think I quit comedy. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, and then the the care home stuff happened. When did Tove have been doing that? I'm going. I'm going to be like one of the people I care for now. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, worrying over little details. Like I think uh, I think Arthur had the red jacket on that day, and uh, mm. you know uh, I can't. Yeah, I can't remember when I first when I first became a, a care worker. It's initially when I was in my my uh, second to last year of university, and I think I just 
I took it on to get a bit of extra money to tide me over. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. And I've always, I mean, I, I think my wife's the same. She, uh, she and I both have just a real profound respect for anyone who works with the elderly because I think it's one of those. It's one. It feels like one of the most thankless good things you can do. Yeah, oh, that's very kind. Like it's become a. It's it, for me. It's become like a, a driving force in my in my life. Like I, I which is what I've. I've been. I'm writing. I got commissioned to write a book proposal, and one of the thing, one of the 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 objectives of the book is to completely overhaul uh, this how people perceive people who are living with dementia or some kind of neurodegenerative disease because people talk about them as if they're like half dead, basically. Mm. And my my guiding ethos is to uh, to to embrace these people for every part of their lived existence even if there's stuff that to us might be a bit embarrassing or they might say things that are considered a bit tactless or there's this kind of rupture in social graces really celebrate that in a way because it goes into what we do as comedians like a big part of our 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 uh, what we do as comedian is to is to kind of uh, uh, rupture social graces and you know uh, um uh, to to embrace uh, taboo subject matter and and be transgressive and yeah, there's certain behaviours that they exhibit as people with dementia that it, that can be. It's not all just gloom and doom. Um, mm. It's it's a way for them to get in touch or get back in touch with their ludic selves. And this sort of sense of 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 play and and childlike naivete and and yeah, there's there's a lot to it. I'm sort of I'm I'm banging on, I'm rambling on about it. I'm not being very no. I think about. I think that's fascinating because I think the it, it's almost like it's almost like our attitudes to death. If you want to, death can seem like a thing which is like you, the totems of death can be a scythe and a skull and darkness and Victoriana and those yeah. things. But equally, if you kind of choose to look through that, then death can simply be like the end of a the end of a life or the next phase. I mean, yeah. not not even next suggesting that there's any kind of an afterlife, but simply in a natural cycle of death and growth and rebirth. Mm. You don't have to treat it as one thing. And I think the idea I wrote some material years ago about the dementia village that's in, and I'm going to forget. Is it Hergerson? I think it's in Hergerson yeah. in the Netherlands, where there's you'll know about this, where they they've recreated a village. Yeah. And there are shops, but the shops don't take money. And there's a little bus, and the bus picks you up and drives you around the block and drops you back off. And it, it's it's a sort of a play environment yeah. whereby people can enjoy almost yeah can enjoy what there is to enjoy about their current situation. And stuff like that, I think. I suppose having seen my grandmother go through it and um, being quite scatty myself, I've, I'm always a, like I've got a terrible memory and I do have a sort of preoccupation, I suppose, that I will probably end up with dementia at some point. I wonder what that will be like. There's no, that's not necessarily a, a logical link to draw, but it's just something that's, that's on my mind a lot. And uh, let's not say a lot, but it's, it's on my mind. Um, so the idea of having, like you say, a ludic, a kind of playing environment for people which is appropriate and warm 
My dad lives in Spain and I'm really pleased that he's now in a situation where there is an outdoor cafe culture where if you're a little old man, it is expected that you leave the house and go and sit on a park bench on a nice balmy evening and watch the world go by rather than in the UK. I feel like it's expected that you disappear somewhere where other people look after you until you die. Yeah, I 100% agree. Like this, it, it, we we have unfortunately got a, a culture over here that isn't particularly kind to the elderly, which isn't to say, obviously, that there are people who are extremely kind to the elderly here and, 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 and are very respectful and will go above and beyond to ensure that they're still visible, that they're not just tucked away. And... Um, yeah, and so that's simulated presence therapy. That's what you're, you're describing in that uh, in that village, and that's uh, it's become kind of the standards. What they used to do was rea- reality reorientation, where they would almost impose our own uh, subjective experience. Because I believe, you know, I'm one of these woo-woo people who believes all experience is subjective, and there is an such you know a deconstructionist approach. And there would be. Um, uh, the, the the standard was to kind of enforce that onto people and correct them and say no you, your husband's dead you're in a dementia home you and imagine yeah. how discombobulating that must be for someone who it just assumes that their 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 version of reality is is uh is is, is set is like is is how it actually is but then there's been some talks and now it's it's simulated presence therapy is the standard or person centered care they say in that you there should never be a uniform approach to care work it should always just be dependent on the the person you're dealing with so whatever their yeah. preferences allow, allow them to uh, allow them to 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 sort of create their own care plan um yeah. without forcing that onto them but then there is this there is stuff say quite compassionate deception sometimes which i always believe is the uh the the best approach because then you have that idea of like the eternal return which is in in eastern religion you had that with trauma if you're per, if you're forcing someone with dementia to constantly revisit a traumatic episode so like the death of their husband the death of their wife the death of their child whatever it is if you're constantly forcing them to confront that over and over and over again how is that good for anyone how how can that possibly ever be a, a, a good thing to force someone you know to, to force someone to do but then this is why i've got beef and this is going i've got i've got beef with you the british alzheimer's society of all the people okay. they're obviously trying to do noble things and I would never uh, completely denigrate the British Alzheimer's Society. But then there was, I'll see if I can find it, there was a statement uh, released uh, from the British Alzheimer's Society who was saying, I'll see if I can find it here. I won't, don't worry, I won't faff about too much. If I can, can't find it in a second, I'll leave it. Yeah, I can't, I, yeah. So, oh wait, actually, yeah. So, um so yeah, I've, because the uh, British Alzheimer's site have got like a notice, noticeable deficit when it comes to researching like the emotional scape of those who are living with dementia. Anyway, um, they're too preoccupied with cause and cure, which is 
vital we know that that's absolutely mm-hmm. vital research but as well they're not worried about what the holistic benefits of of day-to-day um care is and they issued a formal statement saying we struggle to see how systematically deceiving someone with dementia can be part of an authentic trusting relationship in which the person's voice is heard and their rights promoted and i said but it's not a, you're not helping to you're not helping to uh, uh, sort of f- fuel a delusion because a lot of this stuff that they're experiencing, it's like a memory. It's memory coming back to the fore. Yeah. Like it's not like they think they're a conquer. If someone thinks no. they're a conquer, you should probably go, mate, you're a man. Sure. You're, you're a man. Uh, sure. But, but they, they're, they're experiencing memories um, and, and stuff they've experienced before. And I said, and it's... And there's also how is forcing your subjective experience on these people a way of ensuring that their voice is being heard? Because you're saying like, no, what your experience is rubbish, is nonsense. This is how you're supposed to experience the yeah. world. This is how you're what you're supposed to be seeing and feeling. Yeah, sure. And I, I've never understood that from the British Alzheimer's Society. I, yeah, go on. Sorry. To, to what to what extent? I mean, I, I totally, I absolutely take your point. I just wonder in terms of your. I don't know if fascination is the right word. Obviously, there's empathy. That's perfectly natural and and, uh, 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 and anticipated. But in terms of your um, connection with your your interest in working with people who yeah. have uh, dementia, which for many thirty year old people that isn't an interest. Mm-hmm. Um, to what extent do you think it's to do with? I'm not suggesting for a minute that dementia, that people with dementia are transcendent in any way, but is there a connection between the sort of casual approach to reality? <laughs> Let's yeah. say a casual approach to reality and a subjective, a sort of hyper-subjective version of one's own circumstances. Uh, is part of what attracts you to working with people with dementia that, in the same way as that is partly what attracted you to the transcendence you sought with drugs. Um, I, yeah, I, I think that's that's something that might have occurred. Uh, tell, tell me if that's bollocks. I no, don't, no, no, no. I completely, I completely get the the train of thought, and I, I, I think that's there is definitely a connection there. It's not, it's not one I've. I thought about before, but I think that I can a hundred percent see that, and I uh, I think you, you're pretty correct in that. But it's like my there are a lot of this stuff to do with um, uh, the perceptions of of reality within people of neurodegenerative diseases that came a bit later on with uh, research and uh, um, uh, sort of gathering information about this stuff. Mm-hmm. But my initial thing, I just love, I love being. Uh, enmeshed in these people's lives I love becoming an extension of their family I love that they see me as kind of safe ground like they mm. they, they 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 as soon as they see me they they know me and they always would ask for me to be their carer and I just I mm. don't know I just like you just you just love them you just you 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 just you just because they just become such a a, a, a massive part of your life i just and i love just like knocking about with them and just like like having a bit of banter between you know like setting up different things to you know like like i'd always come in and do like shit karate or shit gymnastics i realized anything that's a bit of a like a vis a visual spectacle they would yeah. find really funny and i do stuff like if you're just a bit naughty like you do stuff like i would like if i'm pouring milk 
rather than pouring it like that, I'd put the glass right down here and pour the milk from right up there and see if I could get in the glass. And they would all go, like, oh, clever boy. And, and, they, and, and they, like, they liked the sort of the, the, the tension of like, is he going to spill it? Is he not? And just all these, yeah, I just, I just really love, I love like knocking about with them. I just uh, don't know. I get, I find it very rewarding. Is there, it's, I mean, it really, you can tell from how you're talking about it and it gives me a nice warm glow to hear yeah. you talking about it and to think that some people's elderly relatives are being cared for by people who really love them. You yeah, know, I've, yeah. I've, 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 of course, there's an incredible amount of that happening. Um, and I think there is there is also always the possibility of the sort of the, the fear when one has an elderly relative in a, in a care home that you just don't know how they're being treated. So yeah. I mean, that, that's really lovely, very inspiring to hear. Are, are there lessons that you have taken... In the same way as you're kind of larking about, it's something that's, that's maybe inherent to you, but also something you play with in your comedy, taking that into a care home. Are there also reciprocal? Does it work in the other direction that you, that you learn something, the manner in which you deal with the elderly? Yeah. Is, do you learn something from there that you bring into comedy? Yeah, I've, so it's, it's, there is uh, not meditative in like not meditative like it's tranquil there's not a tranquility to elderly care there is moments in the day but you're very much tethered to the the present moment because they kind of really inhabit the the present moment in in that everything is they're, they're not they're not they're not really worrying about uh, the the future or what's going to happen next they're kind of just observing and reacting to mm. to a lot of things that are going on uh, around them and there's and and yeah I, yeah I suppose that which as we know like in comedy inhabiting the present and reacting to stuff that's going on around you and responding to stuff in the room and 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 this stuff is very you know is, is is a big part of the live experience which is why I've said I, I think we we had a bit of the talk on line about where I said the online gigs like the one I did with Chops I actually really loved I thought it's a lot mm -hmm. of fun and it was great I said just the one thing that's missing is this this uh, idea of occupying the space you're in and of prowling yeah. the stage and work you know yeah, and working out how just by going to this like nook on the stage can can, can really maximize uh you know or create attention or whatever um <clears throat> but yeah no I, I suppose with the i suppose i mean the the, the i think i i don't know because the certain subject matters that i deal with on stage are stuff like uh drug addiction or, or dementia or death and there's that part of it, like I'm always fascinated by like the Saturnalian thing or the the Baalist thing, like the Baal, Baal I think that's how you pronounce it, it's an ancient god, and their uh, their idea of um, like laughing at death and of uh, uh, turning turning uh, stuff that's supposed to have gravitas into into humour, and so it's, it's it's a good way of like cath like catheterizing circumstance and temporarily draining it of his misery, which is why I will always tackle this stuff because uh um I, I, I think it's a really and and Doug Stanhope they posted a clip the other day where he said uh make people saying you shouldn't make fun of that. 
And he said, I shouldn't make fun. I, how, like, oh me, I'm a person who's making fun. How ridiculous. <laughs> what an arsehole I am for doing that <laughs> and for turning these, you know, these, these, these tragic, awful, uh, you know, heart-rending experiences into fun. What a wanker I am. And, and, and for me, you know, if, if handled in the right way and not seen to be laughing at, you know, like laughing at people who have dementia, <clears throat> more laughing at my response to people who have dementia or, or me being in an environment where, or my relationship with them and stuff like that. Um, I, yeah, I think that's good. And I suppose being around it a lot is you get desensitised to it and it, it allows you to... To, to to do it in a way that's that's careful and not exploitative. I don't know. I don't know if that's yeah. a good answer. And do you what do you, well normally at this point I would ask you what you want from comedy, what you ultimately want. We'll get on to that. But do you feel like are, are you optimistic that you will remain free from addiction? Because you're uh, so you're so sort of eloquent and you're so centered at the moment talking uh, about these experiences in the past. Yeah. Do you are you confident that you'll? I'm no. But I mean, I relapsed before Chris. Like, I, 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 this okay. is so. This is the problem. Like, I relapsed just before uh, Christmas, and I got like <laughs> I hooked up again with someone who uh, had borderline personality disorder. Should have learned from the last time, and then I ended up trying to. Uh, I took myself over to to Amsterdam. Because it was the first time I'd been sort of sexually active in a while. I'd had a real like period of uh, of uh, I'd like to say self enforced chastity, but it wasn't. It was just just circumstantial. Just wasn't getting any. And um, when that started to to fall apart, I I took myself. I relapsed. I took myself over to Amsterdam. And I like popped the bag on my head. Tried to asphyxiate myself and uh, kill myself. Obviously, the last minute, I, 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 I decided not to. Tried it for size. Once around the block, wasn't for me. And um, very quickly, after that experience, I turned it into, like, material. I turned it into... I, I got back on stage and I turned that into material. And I said, the problem with that is I, I love confessional comedy. It's, it's what I do. But it does... It opens up, like, a chasm between the artifice of your kind of performative self and then the actual self that exists in the world. And by putting that stuff on stage and turning that into material quite quickly, um, it created a bit of a, a distance and a disjunct between what had happened and my emotional response to it. So I turned it into a bit... I don't think I've ever properly dealt with it. I never I really... Sp- yeah, like... The, 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 oh, I, I see what you mean, because... I Sorry, I thought you were suggesting turning into it a bit helped, and what you're no, highlighting no. is that, that turning it into a bit managed to swerve engaging with it or coming getting anything out of it. Yeah, exactly. So I've heard before co- comedians talk about uh, comedy as therapy, like, whatever works for you, like, everyone's got their, their own ways of, of dealing with stuff. And it, there can be... There, there's definitely moments of catharsis where I've talked about stuff on stage, but I... I think by putting turning it to material, it sort of deprived me of the necessary therapeutic processing. Which, uh, mm. yeah, stand-up comedy, I don't think should be a substitute for therapy because I think the 
the the I've now I've never properly confronted what I did there. And and then I ended up then I ended up actually hiring a sex worker not to not to have sex with just to watch two episodes of The Good Place together so so that we so I could stay safe we just uh, I, I bought an hour of her time and we watched two episodes of The Good Place on Netflix and uh, and then I sort of just said like shook hands and yeah thanks thanks for a nice evening. <laughs> <laughs> You were answering the question, are you confident about about remaining addiction-free with the idea that you fell off the wagon, you relapsed quite recently. Yeah. What do you anticipate in terms of your in terms of your mental state going forward? It sounds like the the it's a surprise to me to hear you had a, a recent relapse, simply because, and not knowing a great deal about addiction, um, simply because the the package of Pope that we're talking to now is a former addict with a useful place in society, a creative career and a history of experiences to talk, to draw on with great eloquence and humour. And that normally is something I associate with people who are way past it. If you're in the, in the, if maybe not in the middle of it, but you don't know where you are in it, what do you anticipate from the yeah. next five or ten years of, of comedy, potentially care homework and and battling addiction. So yeah, so it's I just want to say as well, like the the the, the I, I have got in trouble on stage for talking about that recent attempt with a bit of flippancy and being a bit blase about it. It, it. I'm not affording it the the respect that that experience deserves. So anyone listening, like I understand suicide or suicidal ideation is is a horrible thing. It's a terrible thing, and don't think I'm. I I just haven't. I haven't dealt with it, so that's probably why I'm, I'm being a bit um, a bit flippant with it. But uh, so with yeah, with regards to so with regards to comedy, I I suppose I, I suppose I'm like you know I I, I love I love doing it. Um, I I do it to satiate my ego. Like I think uh, you know a lot of comedians do it. I do it because it it it, it makes me feel good to to leave an indelible mark on people's brains and to have an imprint on the world and to, to uh, like every time I go on stage, though there is a bit of this toxic masculinity because I said every time I go on stage, I have the same thought going through my head, which is uh, I, I will show you how to love me. And then if it's a gig, and then if it's a gig that didn't go particularly well, I'll walk off and my initial thought, obviously I get past this and the, I understand that these thoughts are problematic. But if it didn't go well, I walk and think, I want fucking pussies. I didn't want you to love me anyway. Didn't want sure. it that way. I, I, I wanted you to feel this way about me, but obviously that's like hurt, wounded, petulant masculinity, which is, is ridiculous, um, but it's quite funny as long as it doesn't turn uh, uh, evil. Um, but, uh, but yeah, with comedy. But then also I, I do want to use comedy as well for civic engagement or like civic participation which is why like I set up the care home tour which is comedy specifically tailored for people with dementia we go into I remember talking to Tajay about that was yeah. he one of the acts that did yes okay yeah so me and Ben both both created it was my idea initially and then Josie Long told me to go get in contact with Ben uh me and Ben got on like house on fire you know straight off the bat got this lovely dynamic between us in that and this uh i'm quite a a voluble 
uh, mouthy Essex bloke who uh, you know who who, who will be quite uh, come across as quite extroverted even though I'm not really and then Ben has got this very zen like Mayan very contemplative will take maybe an hour to deliver one fault whereas I just go <laughs> I just go oh, la, 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 and hope you can find something amongst sure. the thicket of my speech um, and yeah so we're, and so yeah me and Ben did that and then we got lots of different people involved who don't rely too much on like linguistic ledger domain or, or like anecdotes so really I'm not well suited for it because I'm an, I'm an anecdotalist or a confessional comedian I tell stories which don't really land because uh, for an audience with dementia they they can't follow the internal logic of joke telling or or stories but what they can really respond to is stuff that's interactive that's ridiculous and a silly spectacle and uh uh, and 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 all that kind of stuff and i'll just give you an example of the wonderful shows we did is that we we try and treat it so that it's like an improv troupe where three quarters of us have dementia Okay. And I always find it works really well. So when me, uh, Jos Norris, uh, Luke Rollison and Nathan Lang, we did one recently for the Leicester Comedy Festival. And it's good for me. I come on and kind of introduce myself and say what you're doing. And it works well if I set it up as like all the people in the room, you know, you're here to critique us. You can be the panel. You can be the ones to judge us. You can like you can work out how much of our fee you're going to knock off because we're not doing too well today. All right, so we're going to do that. And I become a bit of like the whipping boy of that. They like take the piss out of me and stuff like that. And then Jos did this wonderful thing where he came out of like this box and he has to go round and and all the the residents have to put their most sacred and uh, their their most valued memories into the box but then what started happening is people just started putting the actual house keys and stuff in there. <laughs> and it looked like we'd come in to gouge the elderly <laughs> oh, <good laughs> uh, but God. then but then we turned that into a thing of like where we was guys going like you you trust me though wouldn't you brian you i've got a trusting face and like brian would go fuck no and then we'd like, and then and then yeah it's just a way to like facilitate like conversation and and uh, keep this, and and would like keep this, um, uh, yeah, kind of keep this sense of play uh, happening. And, and yeah, it's, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't really know how to describe it. It's always really wonderful when we do it, though. And and the, the and I'm always really respectful. Like the residents who would rather fade into the background and don't really want to be a part of it. They or they're happy to sort of uh, observe it passively without being a participant. We we respect that boundary and allow them. And then, but you always get about a third or half of them who really want to be part yeah. of it and, and be involved. And also we cede the floor to them. A lot of the time they're really, really funny in their own right. Like they're, they're like truly not saying that to be condescending or like, oh, aren't you doing well, my dear? No, they're re- yeah, genuinely sure. really funny. And... Um, yeah, we 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 base just base just go in and allow them to take the piss out of us. It's, 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 it's what it is, and it's always a lot of fun. It's great. Are you happy? Yes, I'd say yeah. At this moment in time, the world's falling apart at the seams, but uh, I I I'm I'm feeling okay myself. So yes, yes, I am. Thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers, Pope. <laughs> So that was Pope 
What a fascinating life. What a fascinating series of choices he's made. And also to, I mean, I say to come back from those things, he's clearly still in a vulnerable position vis-a-vis his his demons, his addictions. Um, But to hear someone battling them in an ongoing and very intentional way, I find very inspiring. And uh, not knowing Pope well at all, to discover him throughout the course of that interview and go from a position of, you know, obviously when I have someone on the show with whom I'm less familiar, but I, I feel like they're interesting. At the very beginning, I'm thinking, I hope this is going to be everything I, I, I want it to be. And by the end, I was like, oh my God. It's always one of those ones. I, I know it's good if I go off and say to my wife, oh, you're going to love this one. I mean, the stuff about the, the, the tour of uh, uh, elderly, elder care homes is is so inspiring and I do an awful lot of... I try these days to transmit more than I receive, um, but a lot of it is focused around this kind of obsession with comedy, which is very gratifying to me. I love it when people are more selfless than me, because it means I don't have to be. (laughs) You can tell now, if you're a listener, if you've been watching The Infinite Sofa, you can tell that the parts of my personality that 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 show is revealing through the fact I need to talk constantly for an hour or more a night... um, it's, it's like a radio show, right? You you can't help yourself come out. And it turns out I'm a little bitch. <laughs> so uh, more, more of that to come. Um, but this is not necessarily the place for it. My point being, I respect Pope enormously and his work as well. And uh, I think you should check him out. He's on Twitch. Uh, he's doing all sorts of stuff online. I'll put that in the show notes. But that's the end of the episode for today. I'm busy preparing for a special event. We're doing a a private Infinite Sofa edition for the charity Calm, the campaign against living miserably. So uh, I won't post Amble at you. Perhaps you'd like to spend the time instead looking online at all the fabulous stuff they do. Uh, I'm a big fan of theirs and I'm hoping to be working more with them in future. But the other reason there's no post Amble is I'm a bit behind on my script. So I'm going to get to it now. Hope you enjoyed this one. I certainly did. Follow Pope on all the places you can follow him. Check the show notes. And I will be back with you in a week next week. Oh, I've got one in hock now. I've got in hock. That's not the phrase, is it? I've got one in my back pocket. Catherine Cohen, who won the newcomer at Edinburgh last year. We'll talk to her. She's isolated and going crazy in in the woods in Massachusetts. And we talk about her phenomenal skill set and the uh, the very different demons she's battling. And then the live record, which will be going out on Twitch at 1pm, twitch.tv slash Stu Goldsmith. Uh, we're live streaming the uh, the new podcast 1pm Wednesday next week with Roger Monkhouse. Come on! See you there.